All right, you guys. So, so I want you guys to remember the scene that we were showed from John in chapter 4 and chapter 5, just for a moment, okay? Um, especially because this is all part of that same secondary visionary cycle or visionary sequence that John has been getting. So if you had to describe that scene, the scene in heaven in those two chapters, of chapters 4 and chapter 5, what kind of words would we use for that? What kind of emotions would that drum up for us? You know, if you remember, uh, it was a glorious vision that John was given there. He sees a vision that amounts to the throne room in heaven. And he sees images. He sees these, these signs that are supposed to convey theological truths about God over all of time. Not a literal description of heaven, but things which teach us things that we need to know. And so first he sees this glorious throne room. And the Father is on the throne. And it's surrounded with beauty and, and these creatures that are worshiping him. And angels are singing. And then... There's this glorious scroll that gets presented, and it's obviously very important, but it has this concealed knowledge that no one is able to know about because it's sealed shut with seven seals. And those seals make John start to weep. Remember that. But almost immediately, it would seem there is this announcement from one of, the, uh, one of those who was surrounding the throne, and he points out that there is a lamb standing but slain, who is worthy to open that scroll. And the Lamb, of course, is Jesus Christ. And the chapter ends with these three different songs of praise. And everyone is happy and rejoicing. And everyone is is filled with exuberance because the Lamb is worthy. And so with chapters 4 and chapter 5, the beginning part of the second visionary cycle, we're meant to be filled with comfort because God is sovereign. He is working all things according to the counsel of His will. The events in time are all happening, part of his plan, even future events. And so that there is this scroll which details events that is able to be opened, but only by Christ Jesus. He is God. He is man. He is the God man, true God and true man. As a fetus in the womb of Mary, he, by the will of the Holy Spirit, his, his divinity was never lessened even in that state. It never at any time of his incarnation, which would include present day as well, will his divinity diminish. That reality that he is true God and true man and and perfect man, never once sinning, is what made him worthy to be able to open up that scroll. And so rejoicing and, and exuberance and happiness flowed from that. And yet in his kindness, which is a perfect kindness... Of course, Christ, that is, he he died for sins. He died for the sins of the elect, for people who will worship him in heaven and on earth, the kinds of people that we've already read about in chapters 4 and chapter 5. And he died and then he rose in new life so that we might live in him. And based off of chapters 4 and chapter 5, we have more than comfort. We have joy. We have true happiness, a gratefulness a peace that surpasses understanding. We have hope and we have rest in Christ. And then we read the opening of the scroll and everything changes. Uh, No more singing now. It's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Not an apocalypse as like some future dramatic event, 
but the four horsemen of this letter, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And these four horsemen describe the pain and the tribulation that comes upon the church as well as the world, but specifically more focused on the church in this present evil age. All four of the descriptions of the seals are true at different times and different places all across God's earth, all over the last millennia, previous millennia. And so this scroll that was sealed for so long that John was weeping over because it was so important that we understand and, and know the events that were contained in it. Well, those events so far haven't been what a reader may thought was going to be contained in that scroll based off of chapters 4 and 5 and why they wanted it open so bad. But I hope that you can see, actually, that it's good that we are given these things, that we're under, able to understand these things that are contained in the scroll, even these first four seals, no matter how hard they are to swallow. I hope at, I hope at least that no one, everyone in here understands that no one likes to be persecuted. I mean, none of us in here are wanting persecution, right? I, I wouldn't think so. It's, persecution is a symptom of the fall and sin, uh, that it even exists, of course. And yet, Jesus assures us that all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. And that we will have trouble in this world, but to take heart, for he has overcome this world. He is greater than he who is in the world. And by that, he means who we're going to talk about in Revelation soon, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet. And so even though these first four seals, which have parallels to the first four bowls and the trumpets and coming chapters, contain information that's not easy, we know that God is sovereign in these things and that they all exist because of sin and and they're being resolved through his purposes in redemption. They, these events, they won't separate us from his great love that he is accomplishing, and he's accomplishing his purpose through them even. Now, these first four seals depict the world's suffering from the perspective of God's heavenly decree, but the fifth and sixth seal are going to shed light on God's decree from another perspective. And tonight we're going to be considering two more of those seals that the the, that were sealing the scroll, which only the Lamb was able to open. And we're going to take the section over two weeks, so just beginning to work with this text tonight. But we're going to look at the seal 5 and seal 6 tonight and next week, Lord willing. So let's read the chapter, the, the rest of this chapter in chapter 6, and then we'll pray. So the reading of God's Word, beginning at verse 9 in Revelation 6. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as the fig tree shed its winter fruit and was shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich and the powerful, and everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and rocks, 
fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you, for you are the one who is worthy to open the scroll, the scroll that we now are getting to hear about. And we pray that you would give to us wisdom and understanding, that you would humble us, help us to be meek, and that you would cause our time in your word this evening to be beneficial for our sanctification and for your glory, to know that you, the Lamb, has a wrath that is unmatched, uh, should sober us all. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to think rightly about who you are and our status before you. May we only approach you through the grace that is offered in your covenant of redemption. And may you be glorified this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the fifth seal is open. And the perspective changes a bit, doesn't it? No longer is the focus on the earth and what's happening through the ages and the persecution of the church. And now it's the response to these actions. First, it's the response from the Christians. And then in the sixth seal, from God. So just because we understand that God is in control of these events described in the first four seals doesn't mean that Christians simply go through them like robots without feeling or without a sense for justice in all of them. Now, though Christians are rightly to be said, or is rightly to be, it's rightly said that we are from a kingdom that is not of this world, John 18, 36, we are still, of course, in this world. And the things that take place in this world actually do affect us, and we should respond appropriately to what happens. And we see human response to the suffering that takes place through the four seals now in this fifth seal. And even though the ordeals of chapter 6, 1 through 8, those first four seals, those four, four horsemen, even though they generally affect the whole world, they affect... Uh, people generally throughout the whole world, the reaction that we read in the fifth seal is the specific reaction that the Christians have to the trials of the four horsemen. These saints that are described here are those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they have borne, for the events that took place under what was described as the red horse and the pale horse, the second and fourth seals. This is something that has happened throughout the ages to God's people at varying degrees. The very first murder was caught up in this even. Now, you remember what happened to Adam and Eve when they broke the covenant with God? Yahweh goes to call out to his creation. They are hiding from him as if that was actually possible to hide from God. Adam ate the forbidden fruit and, and the effects of it were already apparent. But then God addresses Adam and Eve and the serpent and what he does is that he preaches the gospel to Adam and Eve. And he says to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity, which means strife or war, between your seed and the seed of the woman. And he will bruise your head and you will bruise his head. Well, that, that, that's the gospel. He was telling the serpent the gospel at that point in earshot of Adam and Eve. This promise foreshadowed what would happen at the cross. Christ as the seed of the woman, the seed, not just a seed of the woman, but the seed, crushes the head of the enemy at that point. 
but the sword is also involved. I remember that God said he would put strife or war between the woman's seed and the serpent's. And with human nature in its fallen state, it doesn't take long for there to be hostility and hatred and persecution, antagonism and murder. At Genesis 4, right after Genesis 3, right after the story of the fall and then God's declaration and promise of the gospel, uh, we meet in Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. And Genesis 4 tells us that Cain killed his brother. Why? Because in faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. And Cain, not wanting to worship God because, in fact, he hated God, but he couldn't do anything to God, he did something to one whom God loved. Of course, you know, that wasn't hidden from God. Nothing can be. And so we read in Genesis 4.10, And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. In other words, God knows every detail of the death of his saints. He knows the ways in which we suffer. It's not lost on him, and he cares about it. All Christians must take up their cross and follow Christ, Matthew 16, 24. Uh, Christians will be opposed by this world and by those in the world. They must lose their life for the sake of Christ. And that may be true in a literal sense, as in physical martyrdom, which was certainly happening for John's original audience, and in some places today, of course, still. And it's also metaphorically and spiritually true as well. To to be a Christian in this world means that you must lose your life for Christ's sake. That is metaphorically and spiritually true for every single person who is a Christian, and it happens to also be physically true for some as well. Think of what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 2 when he's defending the doctrine of justification by faith alone, because the apostle Peter has started adding back to the gospel these old covenant laws and ceremonies. And so Paul says, in, he's defending the doctrine of justification by faith and Christian freedom in the new covenant, not the freedom to do whatever we like, but, but the freedom to not go back to the old covenant, freedom to rest in Christ for who he is and what he's done. And so in Galatians 2.20, the Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The, The Christian is a person who has been crucified with Christ. And Christ lives in us. That means that we are a new creation with the desires the world doesn't have, desires to truly glorify and worship God and be right with God based solely on what Christ has done. Not that any of us will be perfect and without sin, without sinful thoughts and even sinful desires, but those kinds of things are what remain from original sin, and they aren't what define us as covenant members who are in union with Christ. And so when you're a person who has been crucified with Christ, which is every Christian, every person who is a Christian, just like the Apostle Paul, he's not special in that regard. Everyone who's actually a Christian can rightly say, I have been crucified with Christ. At some point, unless you were to die abruptly after receiving Christ, the world is going to come against you in some fashion. And so 
while it is possible that only literal martyrs are in view here in this fifth seal, it's more likely that it's figurative and it's meaning all Christians who have undergone some suffering and persecution, even outside of death. So, you know, being mocked, not being included, being shamed, losing a job or a position because of your faith, losing an opportunity that the world would think you're stupid for losing even, being prevented from engaging in something that is good because of a commitment to the Lord even, being outcasted from your family, those types of things happen. But all of it is worth it because Christ Jesus is greater than anything that this world can even offer to us. And so these souls, these saints, and by the way, when it says souls here in Revelation 6, it's not talking about um, disembodied people. It's, although that, that would be true, that's what they would be at this point because Christ doesn't come again, so they wouldn't have their new glorified bodies yet. But John is just simply speaking of people who are already present with the Lord when he says souls here. Soul is synonymous with the word person often. And so these are people who have suffered for the faith and suffered with Christ as it were. Now, even though we as Christians will endure trials and tribulations, the kinds that are mentioned in the first four seals, we are nevertheless precious to the Lord. That's what we're seeing here in this fifth seal. Even though we have to go through these things, it's not like the Lord is not pleased with us or that he, his favor isn't upon us. It's, the opposite is true. Even though those types of things happen, his favor is still upon us because of our union with Christ. And so look at how John describes the location of the saints who have been slain for the word of God and the witness that they've borne. They are under the altar. That's kind of a weird thing to say. And I think there's a lot implied by that. For one, they're near to the Lord. They're in God's presence. But also, in the Old Covenant, the altar was the place that where one would bring a sacrifice. But you wouldn't, of course, put the, the lamb or the incense under the altar and remember, this is not a literal description anyways, right? Uh, he's teaching us theological truths. We shouldn't think that there are saints in heaven standing like sardines in a can under this gigantic altar. That's not what we're supposed to see with our minds. That's what he's describing, but he's, he's telling us theological truths in that. <clears throat> so what he's conveying to us is that the Christian is one who has recognized that their life belongs to God. And so the reasonable thing to do is to give up our place and to place ourselves under his altar. That, that what we do, we do to live for him. The choice of, of using an altar is probably intended to make us think of two things on top of that as well. The altar that was used for the burnt offering and then also the altar that was used for incense. And both of these are described in detail in Leviticus. But... The theme of sacrifice here in our text, that these are saints who have been suffering. Some of them, maybe all of them even, have been killed for their faith. But at the same time, from under the altar, their cries or their prayers of these saints rise to the Lord. Uh, and we'll see in Revelation 8, by the way, that prayers rise like incense to the Lord, we'll read. And so it seems like the best way to understand this imagery is to include both of those thoughts. So that would mean that suffering and sacrifice that we, that, that we endure as Christians here and now in this life are like a sweet aroma to the Lord. 
that our faithfulness, which is nothing compared to his faithfulness, is a testimony to our enemies and the Lord's enemies, and so our suffering is not in vain. It's, it's like a sweet aroma, an offering to the Lord. And it grabs the Lord's attention, his senses, again speaking metaphorically, because God knows all things, but this revelation is written for us to understand and to be comforted. And so the lamb was slain, he suffered, and it's not surprising that his people will suffer with him. This is the testimony of Scripture elsewhere as well. I've already mentioned 2 Timothy. Um, all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. But notice also Romans 8. Romans 8, 12 through 17. It's the Apostle Paul, and he is building up to the glory and to the assurance that the Christian has in his union with Christ. And so in verse 12, he says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Again, Christians are those who place themselves under God's altar. We're not trying to live according to our own ways, according to the flesh. He says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God and of children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And those who are near the Lord in this fifth seal, those saints who have endured trials at varying levels, some even all the way to death, who have suffered with Christ and for Christ and in the name of Christ, are also certainly glorified with him as well. The vision that John sees affirms what the Apostle Paul is saying in Romans 8. But now we need to consider 6.10 which is a little more tricky, to be honest. Remember, this is a a vision and not a literal picture of heaven. Uh, There's no altar here. There's no throne here. Uh, These are ways of describing theological truths. And as well, there isn't going to be disgruntled saints who are unhappy, frustrated, impatient, and suffering in light of knowing that they've been wronged. No thirst for revenge either says Joel Beakey. And remember, this is spanning a long time period anyways because these sufferings have been coming upon the church throughout the the course of history. And so in 6.10 we read, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, remember chapter 4 when God is praised for his sovereignty. And he says, Holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth, on those earth dwellers? So, This has proved to be a difficult passage for many, especially for those who find pacifism to be the way for Christianity, mostly based on Jesus' and Stephen's cry for mercy for those who martyred them. But this can be resolved simply by thinking of this a little bit more. If you notice verse 11, what we read in verse 11 is that these saints are at rest. They have a white robe. Remember what that means. It symbolizes purity. It symbolizes holiness. And they're told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow saints and their brothers should be complete, who were killed and who have been suffering as well as they have also. 
And so if they're at rest, well, that means that they're perfectly happy. The white robes symbolize that as well, even happiness and peace, especially peace with God. So it doesn't, doesn't really mean that they're crying out for vengeance, especially not like how we typically understand vengeance or revenge. You know, like, it's like you did this bad thing to me. Well, now I'm going to do something bad to you. That's not what's going on here. For one, personal vengeance isn't the course of action for the Christian. By and large, and there, there are certain exceptions to this rule, but we don't have time to consider those sorts of weeds right now. But by and large, we trust the system that God has set up. So if we're wronged in this life, normally trust the state to make it right. Uh, the state is God's deacon, as described in Re- uh, Romans 13. But often, at the same time, which becomes a difficulty for us, is the state is often opposed to the church. That was the case in John's day already at some places. The state was already killing people. I remember Domitian was having people worship him as the Lord God and killing Christians who refused to bow down to him. Uh, we experience a little bit of the state and the hypocrisy of the state coming against the church just these past two years when they were trying to shut the church down and prevent us from meeting, whereas allowing other things to be open with, um, during the COVID lockdowns. But ultimately, nothing is missed by the Lord. Uh, Romans, so, so to say that, to say that there are some instances that are a little bit muddy and require deeper meditation and thought as far as how to respond to the types of things that come to you, come, come upon you. But generally speaking, we trust the systems that God has in place. But also we should remember Romans 12, 19, in which Paul is reminding the saints there of something that God had said to them in Deuteronomy, where he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And that's what's happening here in Revelation chapter 6. That's what's happening with this cry from the saints. They aren't feeling unloved as if they've been wronged. What has been wronged, or actually who has been wronged in the suffering of the Christian, is God himself. The offense is more against God than it really is on us, though we are the ones who feel it, of course. Remember back to what I was saying about Cain and Abel. The beef wasn't really between Cain and Abel, right? I mean, God even told Cain, if you do well, you'll be accepted in verse 7 of Genesis 4. But instead, Cain goes and meets Abel in the field and he kills him. Not because he was really mad at Abel, but because he didn't want to do what was right before the Lord, whereas Abel did. And so he took it out on Abel because man can't touch God. God is much greater than us. And so what man often tries to do is look to harm those whom God loves. And so this outcry of the martyrs and those Christians who have suffered with Christ is really no different than the imprecatory psalms. Those psalms which call down covenant curses upon people for the rebellion to the Lord and the hatred of his people. And they aren't crying out for personal revenge, but for the vindication of God's holy name. That's what matters the most. Psalm 94.2 says, Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. And God's going to do it. Uh, you, you see, the wrong that was done to Christians, simply for them doing what was ultimately right, that wrong cries out to the Lord. Just like Abel's blood cried out to the Lord. 
Not that Abel's blood literally cried out either. We understand that. Abel didn't turn into some sort of like poltergeist, like with some horror movie or something like that. Not at all. But Abel was transmitted to heaven upon his death. He was there under the altar, as it were, with the other saints who have been hurt or killed for their faith. And it didn't go unnoticed. And it doesn't go unnoticed for anyone. Any suffering that happens to you for the sake of Christ, whatever it may be, the Lord certainly sees it and has compassion on you in it. And that offense isn't going to go unpunished. The Lord will vindicate his holy name. God is a just God. He will punish sin. He will punish lawlessness and transgression. Even those who stoned Stephen, the deacon, or those who nailed Christ to the cross. Both of those events were necessary in the history of redemption, of course. If Jesus was to send a legion from the cross there or before the cross to defend himself against those who were crucifying him, then God's will would have not been done. The Redeemer would have not been crucified. And so Jesus said to lay not their sin against them. And Stephen, if God had poured out his wrath there at that moment, which he would have been just in doing right before those people were going to take up and stone Stephen, who had just preached the gospel from Abraham all the way on. It's an amazing account. Well, then what would have happened to the man who would become an apostle? Paul was there, right? Had Stephen not also said, lay not their sin against them. God is God and God is just. And he will punish sin in his time. Even those people who you know, put to death Stephen and Jesus if they did not repent and turn to Christ. And so that's what we'll cover next week, Lord willing. We'll consider the time or the, time or the waiting phases in verse 11. He says in just a short time, then until all these people come in, and then, and then he goes into verse, chapters or, or the latter chapters of, or the latter verses of chapter 6, and he describes... God describes his own wrath that will be poured out upon the enemies of the Lord and the Lord's people in the sixth seal. But what I want to do is make a couple of points of application from the passage. So first, we need to come to terms with the reality that suffering is a mark of the Christian life. I remember last week, I mentioned the parable that Jesus taught with the, the parable of the sower. And two of the four kinds of people in that parable, they receive the gospel message and they make a profession of faith. But at the end, at some point, they both end up apostatizing. They both end up walking away from the faith. They both end up leaving their profession in Christianity. And the reason that one of those kinds of people leaves was because of tribulation and persecution on account of the word. The very thing that we read these saints are under the altar for here in Revelation Uh, chapter 6. And so my point is that it will come, friends, in some way, in some form. Living in a Western world like ours may not even be a safe place for Christians in the coming years. The likelihood that one may be martyred is increasing. I hope it doesn't happen to anyone, of course, but I mean, we need to be paying attention to what is happening in this world. And remember the admonishment that was given to Timothy from the Apostle Paul one more time. Indeed, All who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. Now let me ask you, is a Christian a person who desires to live godly? I mean, in some cases, that may be all that a person is. They aren't succeeding at it very well, but they're desiring to live godly. People who are united to Christ, they are 
people who aren't united to Christ, they're certainly not seeking to live godly. They hate God's law even. And so I don't want you to be disillusioned about Christianity. Yes, we have every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Yes, there is eternal life. Yes, our sins are forgiven. Yes, we can approach the throne of grace with boldness. Yes, we are sons and daughters of God. Yes, all the promises of the covenant are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, and we are united to Christ, and so therefore they are ours as well. But that doesn't mean you're going to have your best life now. It might mean that you have a life that those in the world see as foolishness and worthless. It might mean that, yes, you may die for your faith. But the best thing that you have, friends, what makes any and all suffering worth it even, even more so than that short list that I already went through and we could have added more things to that list, what, makes, what you have that makes it all worth it is that you actually, you have God. You have God. You have Christ. And whatever sort of suffering may come our way, it will serve you to remind you of your need for Christ. Even great suffering. Remember what Spurgeon said, I have a great need for Christ. And I have a great Christ for my need. And secondly, when we are wronged in this world by those who hate the Lord, whether for the sake of the word of God or, or just simply because mankind is evil and mankind, apart from Christ, loves to do evil. Even deep wrongs like rape and murder and the murder of a loved one, we need to understand that nothing will go unpunished by God. Remember what Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Or Psalm 145 verse 20 The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Sin will be punished. Every wrong will see justice. But we need to remember that God deals with this in one of two ways. Either the individual who sins will pay that penalty, and that would be everyone, right? I mean, everyone sins. Everyone inherited guilt from Adam, so everyone by nature is a child of God's wrath. Or, as it is for the Christian, Christ has propitiated that wrath and taken it upon himself so that the person will have peace with God and therefore have no condemnation. And both are good choices and both are, not both are good choices, both are good actions on God's behalf and you as a Christian should be good with both. Even the fact that God will punish upon an individual their sins with the weight of eternity for every person's sin is cosmic treason against an eternal God. But I've talked to many Christians who have had serious wrong done to them and it is within them to want the person who wronged them to have to pay for their crimes and their sins. And while it is good to want justice for crimes when the sin is a crime, you also need to be aware that If a person who sinned against you receives Christ, then they are now your brother and sister in Christ, regardless of what that wrong was that they did to you. And if they did a crime to you, then that crime should still be met with justice by the state, if that's possible. And they should be fine with that even, being that they now understand the weight of their sin. But if Christ has paid the the penalty of sin for someone, that's enough, brothers and sisters. Think of Stephen and the Apostle Paul again. What if he was adamant about Paul paying for his crimes? 
what then of the ministry that God had for, in store for Paul? And even more than that, I remember the kindness of God in your own life. When you have a hard time thinking about forgiving someone who's wronged you, remember the kindness and the mercy of God in your own life. That God would come to you, a rebel sinner, and reveal himself to you and not utterly destroy you at that moment, but offer to you the riches of Christ. And you know the wicked sins that you've done. And you don't deserve salvation. And then let the, the kindness of God's reconciling love towards you also be the motive for you to desire that same reconciliation for others, even those who have harmed us. Let's pray. Holy God, we are so grateful for your gospel and the reconciliation that it gives, Lord. It, it, is, it is everything, God. It's like we can't rightly put into words how valuable it is, for we know that we would be utterly dead and without hope apart from it. And so we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to make sense of this world that we live in. We know that no suffering will go unnoticed by you, Lord. We know that no evil will go unpunished. And we are grateful to know, Lord, that our evil was paid in Christ there on the cross. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to think rightly about the things that are happening, that we would trust in your judgment upon this earth. For certainly, Lord, We are all happy that your judgment upon us was met in Christ. And so let us not think bad about your ways, Lord. Uh, Forgive us for if if we ever have and, and make it, Lord, so that we would never frame our minds to think such foolish thoughts because we know that all that you do is right. You are the judge of the earth. You will do what's right. And that is our great joy and hope. So may you be glorified and blessed always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys. Any questions or anything I could do to try to clear up something I said? What was the, right, the white robes thing? We talk, remember we've talked before about white robes. Remember in the, um, the letters to the churches, he talked about some of them being clothed with white if they were to overcome. And so it's just a, it's a testimony, a picture to say that they've been, that they truly are redeemed, that they're holy, that Christ, they're clothed with Christ, in other words, right? of Christ's righteousness. Yeah, that's not the first time. There's, then there was that one difficulty that we had in Romans, the, or Revelation 6, where there was the rider on the white horse. And we talked a little bit about some people think that's Christ because of the white horse. But I'm more convinced that it's um, like a, a false gospel. And we'll actually have talk about that more next week, actually, too. All right, guys. <clears throat>